Hello, all, and welcome to the Relationship Renovation Podcast. I'm Tara Kerwin. And my name is EJ Kerwin. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the concept of shame. And we're going to look into how shame affects individuals, how it affects couples. We're going to sort of define what shame is. We're going to talk about shame versus guilt. We're going to explore why we feel shame, what its purpose is. And what are some common triggers to shame? And then in particular, we're going to explore how shame impacts the LGBTQIA plus community. And on that note, we're going to have Tara introduce who our special guest to help us explore uh, this subject is today. I was laughing because I was going to say, can you say shame one more time? Shame, shame, shame. (laughs) We are very excited and grateful to actually have one of our own clinicians, Mr. Kelby Jones, here with us in our studio because his specialty is shame and how it impacts individuals, couples, and also the LGBTQ plus IA community. And so, yes, let me introduce Mr. Kelby Jones, licensed associate counselor, amazing couples therapist here at Relationship Renovation. And I could go on forever, but I know that I can't. So welcome, Kelby. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to uh, be on the show today. Yeah. Hey, so Kelby, I mean, one of the best things right at the beginning is help people get to know you. And I, you have a really interesting background mm-hmm. of sort of what brought you into this field. Um, tell us about yourself a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, I, gr- I grew up in Arkansas, a uh, small town. I think 300 people was the last time I saw the population wow. sign. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so growing up, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to do film and TV and probably get out of that small town. So Uh, My undergrad is in film and television production. Uh, I lived in New Orleans. I've worked, you know, all over just doing different productions and stuff and kind of got siloed into uh, reality TV. So, you know, a lot of a lot of interesting topics to be explored there. But, you know, it just ultimately wasn't as fulfilling for me uh, personally. So I left that industry and was doing kind of some random things here and there and kind of decided to go back and get my master's in counseling. And that's how I kind of came to this. Yeah. I, I similar to you, had like a, a background in another field, similar to you as well, in media entertainment. And there was a transition for me between that field and wellness and mental health that I found actually they weren't that far apart. I mean, can you maybe just tell us a little bit, like what was that gap for you that got you from media to this. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the things I learned going into my master's program was about what we call attending skills and, you know, being a therapist. And I kind of realized that, you know, a lot of the attending skills and motivational interviewing skills that we we practice as therapists, I was already doing when I was working in reality TV. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of had this realization for me that we were taking these stories, these very, you know, real human stories and we were perverting them and passing them through a filter and then putting them out on national television for exploitation. Mm. And uh, I just didn't want to be a part of that game anymore. So I wanted to use those skills and and what I had kind of identified early on as a um, talent of mine to, to do some good in the world. And, you know, I I thought that that was the direction I was going to go, but I just kind of realized that that wasn't it when I was in TV. So how are you liking this journey so far in the mental health couples counseling, individual counseling realm? I absolutely love it. I have been 
I've felt very blessed. I, I remember being in, you know, kind of in a in a place and I was just asking myself, you know, if I could if if all of my needs were met financially, you know, and all of that, what would I still be doing every day? And I guess I've been a therapist kind of my whole life, just mm. unofficially. And yeah. so I knew I was gonna be doing this every day and I loved it. And if I could get paid at it, great. So that's kind of how I approached it. And it has been reinforced over and over and over every day, every session, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm, I'm very happy. Yeah. Well, and it just comes across in our supervisions and our group supervisions and just from client feedback that you're just a very gifted, skillful therapist. So your journey was your intuition to follow this path was right on. Yeah. And when we asked you like, hey, you know, please come onto the podcast, please talk about something. And we and we wanted it to be something yeah. that you really connected yeah. with, something that, that you have, you know, a lot of insight into. It seemed like shame was something that, that automatically popped up for you. Like, well, why is that? You know, so as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in a really small town in a pretty conservative area. Um, and I grew up, I'm in a same-sex relationship, I'm gay. And, uh, you know... It was something that for me was affecting my life in a lot of different ways and specifically in my purpose and, you know, where I felt the most valuable. And as I was trying to reconcile a lot of that for myself, I kind of came across Brene Brown's work and, you know, she's very fundamental in, in talking about shame and it just completely transformed my life. And I knew that this was the type of work I wanted to get into because I saw so much of this showing up in my own community and not just in the LGBT community, but also, you know, in couples that I see on a regular basis. I mean, you know, I can almost relate anything back to the shame that we feel. So, yeah. So, for me, shame was underpinning so much of what I was experiencing growing up and so much of what I see in other people's lives. You know, there's certain words that when I bring them up in a, in, in a session with an individual or a couple that people sort of shrink away from, yeah. or they like, they shake their heads or they, they don't want to, they don't want to link into it. You know, resentment's one that people like sort of quickly push away. Shame is, is almost yeah. heavier, right? And, and so maybe it, it might be nice to, to start this conversation with like, help us understand the way you conceptualize shame. Like what, what is shame? You know, it's funny because uh, Brene Brown has a has a joke that she tells when she doesn't want to talk to people on the plane and they ask her what she does. She says, oh, I'm a shame researcher and people pretty much shut down <laughs> because they don't want to like talk that. about it. You know, shame, you know, as she defines and in, in, in her research, shame is just simply the fear of disconnection. Mm. Um, and so the way that I conceptualize that is that we do have this fear that, you know, there's something about us or something that we've done that is going to disconnect us from our family, from our community, you know, from our tribe, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, shame is really difficult to talk about because shame thrives on secrecy. And the more that, you know, we talk about it, in fact, the more that it, that it heals. Mm -hmm. And so shame doesn't like that. And so the way that it shows up is, is to not talk about it. Yeah, I did a, a training years ago around um, around sexual addiction, and the the differentiation that they made between shame and guilt I, that I thought was really powerful was that that guilt is I feel bad about something I did, mm -hmm. you know, whereas shame is 
I feel bad about who I am. I am bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, guilt is a, fo- a focus on the actions. You know, mm-hmm. when we take something that we've done, an action that we've done that we don't feel proud of, and we make that part of our identity, then what happens is it's really difficult to heal from something that we've made part of our identity. You know, shame, as mm-hmm. you said, I am bad. Guilt, I did something bad. And so if, say, my partner and I, we had a, we had a date planned, and I, you know, couldn't get away from work or, you know, I was late or something happened and I missed the date or I, you know, was late and it was, you know, it was important and I could tell that that really affected him. There's kind of a, a choice, it might be an unconscious choice, but there's kind of a choice there of I can feel guilty for this. I can feel guilt for doing something, showing up late or missing this date. And in that, there's already a path to resolution because in that guilt, mm-hmm. I know, well, okay, well, next time I'm going to, you know, show up, I'm going to be more dependable. Mm-hmm. If we allow this to turn to shame, that looks like I'm a bad partner, I'm undependable. That's really hard to kind of come back from. Yeah. Well, and I think when we are talking about shame and how a lot of people resist going there, and I don't think a lot of people, individuals or, you know, partners in relationships understand like the driving force that shame creates to feeling disconnected. Yeah. And so we have to talk about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what I heard you say, and then I, and you reinforce that there, Tara, is that guilt is transient. You know, it's mm. it's associated with an action, mm-hmm. and it's it's a lot more easily resolved. Whereas shame becomes foundational sometimes for an individual, and it sort of becomes a blanket that they wear, you know, all the time. So, how do you look at like when you meet with an individual, when you meet with a couple, like? What are the first signs to you that, mm. that shame is having a an impact upon them? I listen for really for two phrases, but the biggest one I listen to in terms of shame is I'm listening for anything that starts with I am. Mm. You know, of course, if it's following with something that's, you know, positive, I wouldn't label that as shame. But if they're, you know, they're talking about, you know, I am a bad partner or I am stupid. You know, I hear these things a lot when people talk about even on an individual level. That's a big indicator that that person, that there's a core belief there. There, That's a shame Mm -hmm. statement. There's a core belief that's backing that up. Mm -hmm. And the other one, and, and, you know, and this is probably for a different talk, but is I should. And that usually leads to some sort of expectation. And my next question is, is this realistic or unrealistic for that person? But again, that goes to a different different talk. (laughs) And my question, too, is because, again, this is a sensitive topic. A lot of people don't want to go there. Like, what do you notice about in the therapeutic process when you're starting to kind of notice and address shame? Like, how do you get people to open up about it? How do you get your clients to open up about it? So, you know, when I start seeing shame come up um, in sessions with couples, one of the first things that I start to do is create a safe space. Mm-hmm. Because what I know is that shame you know, the response that we have to it, the shutdown that you're talking about, the avoidance of talking about it, that is essentially a trauma response because shame is very associated with trauma. Mm. And so what I start to do in that moment is I'm falling back on my skills as a clinician to create this safe space and safe environment to, you know, remove any perceptions of Mm -hmm. judgment, you know, just kind of working to normalize what they're going through. 
the emotions are going through. Yeah, that that safe space yes. seems like incredibly important, right? Because what I've experienced is that when when there is shame involved, an individual has created a lot of barriers around it. You know, they they've kept it socked pretty deep inside of them. Yeah which makes it hard to access. And then by the time they're coming to see you as an individual client or you in the context of couples counseling, you know, it's pretty well insulated and it's started to cause a lot of disruptions in their life and establishing a place where where we can talk about that thing that you've got hidden deep inside of yourself is like essential to even even have a chance for them to address it. And it's, I was gonna say, I think shame keeps a lot of people away from therapy. Mm-hmm. To me, that looks like that resistance piece that definitely, I, I, I've known a lot of people who just don't want to go there because they're afraid of what would happen, right? And also that I think when when people come to therapy or they have this idea of therapy, it's like, oh, there's something wrong with me. But really, you're just in this setting with a skilled professional who's providing unconditional positive regard and safety. And you can be anything you need to be. And it's freaking amazing because you are held in this safe space. And how often do we get to be held in a safe space outside of a therapist's office? It might take a minute to feel comfortable and get used to it, but that's right? Because you said the way to reduce and heal shame is by talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's one of the things that I do with couples specifically is we'll talk about, you know, what about this space, meaning the, the therapeutic space, the office, what about this experience made it possible for you to talk about this today? And they'll usually talk about, oh, well, you know, I felt I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel shamed. Um, I just, I, I felt comfortable. I felt like I could do that. And then I'll ask them some questions, you know, well, how did you know that you weren't going to be judged? You know, what were the things, getting them to identify mm-hmm. what constitutes a safe space. And then I say, how can you create this at home and in your relationship? Yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> because this is where this comes up is oftentimes, you know, you were talking about it getting deeply embedded. I think of that as like the scar tissue. You know, if we look at this, say, take yourself back to when you were a little kid and maybe you fell off the monkey bars and you broke your arm. And, you know, at that time in our lives, and especially with something like breaking a bone, you know, you're going to go to the doctor, you get a cast, Mm -hmm. everybody at school wants to sign it. It's almost like this rite of passage, right? Right. Emotional trauma, shame included, it's not like that. We don't look at it that way. One, you can't get a cast and people can't sign that. But even if you could, people don't want to know about it. Mm. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to know about it. And so what happens is we start to lock that away. We start to hide it. And if we treated that broken bone the same way that we treat mental health issues, what would happen is after years, um, that bone would heal crooked. That bone would be, you know, painful. Maybe you might have a lot of residual effects. And when you finally go to the doctor to get that fixed, they're going to have to re-break that and reset it. Mm. You know, shame work is much like that. We've locked this away. It's healed in ways that it's showing up in our lives in ways that we're not in control of. And so in order to heal it, we have to really dive deep. And that might look like getting through some scar tissue, and that can be Painful. painful, and we have to take that slow. Thank you for that metaphor comparison visual, because that really made sense to me. 
When you said you said residual effects, and then and then you said I forget what the other phrase was, but you you mentioned just you know the the way it's affecting them in their lives. Like so, if there's an individual at home and they're listening to this and they're like, wow, like is there do I carry shame and is it impacting myself, my relationships? What are those residual effects that that you know that both of you that you see when somebody is carrying this? Um, I see it in how they talk to themselves. You know, it, it's really subtle. It goes back to, you know, they're telling me of an experience that they had and then they drop in the, yeah, and I'm stupid. So mm-hmm. there's this, or I'm, you know, I'm not worth, you know, I'm not worthy. And the residuals that I see going through your life is these are core beliefs. And so core beliefs basically are statements about yourself or the world that influence how you show up. And so if I have a core belief or a shame statement that says I'm unworthy, you know, and I go into, a, say, a workspace or into a relationship and that person or that, that work environment is saying, no, you, you know, you're a very valuable employee. We really enjoy you. One, I'm probably not going to believe that because I don't believe it myself. It doesn't match your belief filters of exactly. the world and yourself. Yep. Exactly. And then what happens in relationships, which I think might even be a little bit more insidious, is we start to then say, well, what's wrong with you that you would believe something like that about me? Because I know that's not true. You must have ulterior motives or you must be, you know, trying to pull one over on me or use me, you Mm -hmm. know. And so that comes up a lot in relationships too. I see the mistrust piece and also like that undeserving piece. And then I feel like some people who do carry shame do a lot of people pleasing and caretaking of others and not themselves because they don't see their needs or wants as important. And then unfortunately it creates this very dysfunctional dynamic of codependency. Sure. Well, and it, and it also, because you're, you've built a barrier around this portion of yourself that's extremely vulnerable, that you don't want anybody to access, it also puts like sort of a limit on how deeply you can connect with your partner. Right. And then your partner at a certain point they don't really totally understand what's going on, but they're like, why Like, why can't you break through to a deeper level? Like, why can't we connect more deeply in an intimate way? Why can't you show up in an emotionally open way? And then the partner gets really frustrated with it. What's wrong with you? Which then reinforces to the person who experiences the shame, like, yeah, you see, like, I'm I'm just messed up. I'm just, you know, I'm broken. I, I can't be fixed. That's like the self-fulfilling prophecy of shame, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. And it's a very pathogenic approach to it. You know, what's wrong with me? Which is, you know, when we think about pathogenic approaches, we're assuming that there was something wrong with you from the start. You know, and so then we have the alternative approach, which is salutogenic, which basically is what happened to me? What happened to you? And so when we can approach it with that salutogenic approach and we say, What's what happened to you that you believe this way? Mm. Then we again, much like with guilt versus shame, that becomes a focus on what we can do to change it. Yes. Whereas with pathogenic approach, we have to kind of it's almost like acceptance versus resignation. Mm. We resign to this idea that there's something inherently wrong with us. I feel like that's why when we're going through um, with every individual and couple we see, we go through their genogram, which means they're like kind of family history, their lifeline, their timeline, their life history, who they were they're from infancy to where they're at now. And it feels like being able to get that life story and really understand early attachment and internalized beliefs, 
that kind of starts the process of people like really seeing their life in a different way instead of, because normally we avoid, we withdraw, we will do anything to like ignore the step. But when we're looking at our, we're having to reflect on our entire lifeline, it starts to make sense a little, like maybe feels more comfortable because that process is where a lot of our individuals and couples start to really increase compassion for themselves. Because I think they get to start thinking like, holy God, yes, maybe it's not just me. Mm-hmm. And to the partner, if it is in a coupleship, like, oh my God, there's other things outside of me that have caused you pain. Mm-hmm. I am not like the worst person in the world. And I think you said a key word when you said compassion, because compassion is really the antidote to shame. You know, Tara, you introduced to us the intervention the other day in our mm-hmm. meeting on the on polyvagal, mm-hmm. polyvagal theory, which is essentially our fight or flight response. And, you know, EJ, you touched on it earlier when you were talking about, you know, feeling frustrated or why is it so difficult for that individual to go deep? You know, what's that barrier that comes up? And that's our fight or flight response mm-hmm. um, or fawn or freeze, depending on how, you know, intense the experience is. And so what happens is, you know, we get to this place where this starts to become too painful for us to, you know, to address, to talk about, to re-experience. And I think that's one of the common misconceptions in trauma work is that we have to re-experience or go through the nitty-gritty details of trauma in order to heal the shame that follows. And the truth is we don't. We don't have to go through those details. In fact, you know, we really risk re-traumatization when we do try to take our clients through those details. Mm-hmm. And as a clinician, I ask myself often throughout the session, am I asking this question because I think that there's clinical value in... Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. In terms of the work we're doing, or am I asking this question because I'm just being nosy? Mm. And if I can't justify Mm. a clinical reason, then the answer is I'm just being nosy and I'm not going to ask that question. Oh, I like that. And I think, th- I think that's also a huge barrier for people really doing the work that needs to be done around shame is that they have this innate understanding of where it came from and they have no interest whatsoever or, or no instinctive like sort of movement towards talking about that incident. And I know that I've done a lot of wonderful work with people around this and never gotten into that. Mm-hmm but definitely got into what were the adaptive ways that you survived afterwards for one year, five year, 20 years that now have become maladaptive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, How did you protect yourself then that is not working now? Now it's more dangerous because you're isolating yourself from people that love you and care about you and that you love. Yeah, and I would say, you know, behaviors, focusing on behavior, behaviors have consequences. 
But I don't necessarily think that emotions have consequences. I think they're pretty neutral in that realm. Mm -hmm. It's how we respond to those emotions that end up having consequences, and those consequences can be good and bad. You know, uh, we think about the bad ones being obviously disconnection in our partnership or, you know, showing up in a way that is, you know, hurtful to our partner. You know, one thing to understand too is the one way that we kind of try to self-heal is by discharging that shame onto others. And again, when we're not willing to look at this and find a path to compassion for ourselves, we try to heal by discharging it onto others. And that's why you see so much of these shame cycles being repeated throughout the lifespan. So help us understand that discharging your shame onto others, because I think that's that would be a very important thing for a partner of somebody who really struggles with shame, but also the individual, like, what does that look like? Um, yeah, so Brene Brown talks a little bit about this in, in, in her work, but really, you know, one of the things she says is, if you want to find where you feel shame the most, look at where you judge others. Hmm. And the reason for that is, and, and what she says is, is this the statement that we are saying when we, you know, maybe we see somebody and they're like, oh, I wouldn't wear those pants if I were her. Um, that judgment we feel, what that really speaks to and what we're really telling ourselves in that moment is, you know, I may look this way, but at least I don't look like that. You know, and so we'll discharge that shame off onto others in a, as a form of judgment. And in fact, she says, if, you, if you're struggling to find where you feel the most shame, look at where you judge others the most. That's usually a good starting point. The way that this often will come up in couples work, you know, in terms of, you know, judgment uh, of our partners and, and how that might relate back to shame that we feel inherently in ourselves, you know, for example, if, you know, you yourself are feeling that your body or, or, or the way that you eat or your health or, or any of that is, is, is an issue and you want to start working on that, but then you see your partner not taking that same approach or that same initiative and feeling like, well, they need, you know, don't eat that. That's unhealthy for you. You're going to gain weight, you know, and that judgment that we have, that they may have for that partner really is speaking to this deeper level of I myself am feeling shame about how I'm eating and, and, and what it is that I'm doing. And you mentioned earlier in the podcast, one of the big things that come up that shut people down is resentment. Resentment's also really attached to this. Hmm. Brene Brown talks about resentment being kind of the crossroads between envy and anger. I'm so envious of you that now I'm mad about it. I'm so envious that you get to kind of eat whatever you want and it doesn't affect your physical mm. you know, health that now I'm angry about it. And so resentment and judgment, these are the things that are all, you know, derived from the shame that we feel about ourselves that we can be projecting off into our partners. And protecting from having to go in and take a deep look at the aspects of yourself that you don't accept, that you don't like, mm -hmm. that you can't come to some sort of, you know, uh, compromise with and integrate, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. To me, it feel, it's like that feeling of like, I don't have control, but I don't know how to be with that, right? I don't know how to be with that feeling of like, I'm, I'm not in control. So I'm going to discharge that, project that onto my environment. Maybe I need the cleanest house ever. Maybe I need EJ to look a certain way. Maybe I need to look a certain way. Maybe I need to present myself like this. But then once you start to really process what that really is, that's where you go into the shame of, I have no control, something bad is happening, or I'm a bad person. And then everything starts to kind of transition and shift. And I, I guess I'm kind of going now towards the healing piece, so I didn't mm -hmm. mean to like move forward. E no, no, that was okay. perfect. I was going to say, you know what control is, right? 
Control is what we tell ourselves is the antidote to our anxiety. If I can control every aspect of, of this situation, then I can predict the outcome. And therefore, I don't have this fear of the future, which is what we would define as anxiety. Mm. And so we often will try to fight for control in our environment, but we also can pull back and look at that and say, well, we never really have control anyway. And so what we end up is this, there's this um, attempt to resolve this, this emotion that we feel through a behavior that we can look at and say, this isn't actually effective, but we trick ourselves into believing that it will be. And so what happens with that is we try to control everything. We try to control our environment. We try to control our partner. You know, again, we do that in an effort to ease our own anxiety. But anxiety is really more eased by predictability. Mm. You know, if I have a routine, that routine increases uh, predictability, that predictability reduces anxiety. You know, shame is one of those things that when I start talking about it and I talk about it as a fear response or a threat response, people, you know, ask, well, you know, how is that? Is that a stretch? You know, and I think about it from, from the perspective of imagine yourself, you know, we, the three of us are on an island and I have a certain amount of skills and EJ has a certain amount of skills and Tara has certain skills and together we have all of those skills. Mm -hmm. But if you guys decided to vote me off the island, you know, i.e. reject me from your tribe, your group, your family, I now have only a third of the skills left to survive. A third of the resources, a third of the skills. So evolutionarily speaking, this very much does speak to our own survival instinct. And so it makes total sense why your amygdala would process shame and that fear of disconnection as a threat response and sound that response in the rest of your body. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that that's what's going on and that part of the path to resolution for some of this is doing your own self-soothing work around, hey, we don't live on an island. You know, I don't need to to fit in with this group. Well, yeah, and what ju what jumped out to me are a couple things. Is one in an effort to protect ourselves from our our partner, the world around us, and keep that shame like buried deeply inside of us. We end up then letting our shame run the show. And then that's where, uh, you know, also when you were talking, I was just thinking about, well, that's also why shame is intergenerational, mm -hmm. you know, is just the, like, because if shame's been running the show for our parents and then for our parents' parents, I mean, of course, then it's going to run the show for us. Yeah. And I think about it like um, taking chocolate pudding and putting that inside of a cardboard box and sticking that up in your pantry. It might hold for a little bit, but that cardboard's not going to last very long and it's going to start to seep out and it will make a mess. And that's exactly what happens with shame is we try to put it in a box and put it away, but it seeps out into our lives and makes messes. And then the pathway out of shame yeah. is connection, right? Mm -hmm. is, is opening up, is finding, as we talked about at the very beginning, finding that safe space where you can start to talk about these are the things internally I struggle about myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the intergenerational shame that you were talking about and kind of that, you know, again, going back to how we tend to try to deal with our shame is to dispel it onto others. Well, you know, if our parents are growing up with a certain amount of shame about something, then that's also what they're, mm -hmm. they're dispelling that off onto us. If there's shame about socioeconomic status or looks or, you know, I mean, you think about sexuality, and sexuality, you know, definitely as we talk about the LGBT community, you know, these are things that, you know, our parents are feeling shame for that they're dispelling off onto others. And for the parents out there, I know that it's not intentional, you know, and I think that's part of that healing is understanding that, 
you know, this is not intentional. It's just, you know, the Buddhist principle of suffering of the human condition is one of, of suffering and the attempt to ease suffering. Mm-hmm. And we just have a really bad way of trying to ease this suffering by dispelling it onto others. Well, and even just societal shame, cultural shame, religious mm-hmm. shame, I, we could go on and on. Yeah. yeah, we could. We just have so many messages in there like, you can't do this and mm-hmm. you have to be like this and the hell. Well, and you might come out of a a family structure. You might be in a relationship. You might be in a community where it's absolutely not safe, Mm -hmm. where if you open up, it won't be accepted. It will be used against you because of the, because of their shame. And so the, you know, why we do what we do, why you ended up doing this, why, why Tara and I have, have you know, created what we created is like, we need to create safe spaces where people are unconditionally accepted for who they are, not necessarily their actions. Some of their actions might need, might need help. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, like a place where, where you are a wonderful, beautiful human being and we'll accept the mistakes you make. So let's, let's get an understanding of what that shame is sort of like pushing you towards on a daily basis that just isn't working for you. Yeah, because compassion and forgiveness are not acts of complacency. And in fact, we can, if we're doing it right, we are holding people accountable for their behaviors. And so understanding that behaviors, again, behaviors are symptoms, but they're symptoms of what we're feeling. So when you're starting to you know, when you're processing shame, when you're healing shame with a couple or with an individual, what do you notice when it starts to change? Uh, one of the biggest things I notice is, is like you were saying, EJ, that, you know, we need to create these safe spaces for each other to just exist exactly as we are. Mm-hmm. And what I start noticing when couples are starting to, you know, do work around shame is that they start creating those spaces for themselves and for each other. And that just takes me right back to a lot of what the LGBT community is attempting to do for for members of, you know, we talk about pride events and we talk mm-hmm. about different, you know, safe spaces in terms of, you know, community spaces and things like that. You know, one of the things that, you know, I've experienced in, is that you can come from the most loving and accepting family and you're still going to be taught that who you are is shameful because of how our society views that. Mm-hmm. And we can't deny that that, you know, everything we know about shame and relationships, we can't deny that that, you know, collective trauma in the LGBT community is not showing up in our relationships, you know, and how we form connections. And mind you, when I talk about connection and relationships, I'm not talking about even just on the romantic sense. I'm talking about mm-hmm. in our friendships, in our workplaces, in our families, you can come from a very loving and accepting environment and still learn that who you are is, not you know, okay. not okay, right? And society will teach you that. And so for parents out there, because I do work with a lot of parents who have children, you know, who are identifying as LGBT, they, you know, that's what they don't always understand. It's, it's you know, they say, well, we, we've we never taught them to be afraid, ashamed of that. We've never, you know, it's always been accepted in our house. And we have to understand that whether you're gay or not, we all have things we have to quote unquote come out about. And it doesn't matter if your family is totally supportive of who you are as an individual, there's still a Mm -hmm. moment there where we have to question, is it going to be okay if I come out as this, as who I am, as who I am. And that's different than what my family believes me to be. And so that creates an inherent shame. 
is there this fear of disconnection from my family, from my group, for who I am? Mm -hmm. And so that shame then, if we're not if we're not careful, begins to grow. If we yeah. don't talk about it, if we keep it in secret, and we don't have compassion for it. I mean, sometimes the most powerful um, sharing we do on this show is about is is the way we relate to a topic because it it, it humanizes it for people. And I, I'm I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to just you know, here towards the end, just share a little bit about your journey through shame and and how you you noticed it and and what's worked for you and what that has led to you to in your own life. Yeah, I mean, we could have a whole episode on that. Say, that's but, a whole podcast, yeah. CJ. <laughs> <laughs> but I can, you know, the succinct version of it is this, you know, I, I did grow up in an environment and in a family where it wasn't accepted and it was something that was talked about in a negative sense. And I love my parents and, you know, it's not, it's not about that. In fact, part of my own healing from that shame was finding compassion for what they were going through and understanding that, you know, my dad grew up in a time where the AIDS epidemic was rampant and they weren't talking about it. And it was years before the president of the United States would even mention the words AIDS and acknowledge mm -hmm. that it existed. And so, you know, he grew up in a time where he was seeing people die of this on a regular basis mm -hmm. and associating that with the quote unquote gay disease, that's where his fear came from. Right. And that's where, you know, his unacceptance, I guess, of, of, you know, who I was as an individual really came from his own fear of my safety, you know, of, of, am I going to live? And I know that, um, and sorry to my sister who I'm telling on right now. Um, I know that through conversations that she's had with him and what she's expressed, you know, do you know what the average lifespan of someone who's gay is? Not fully understanding those statistics, but understanding that that creates fear for him. And that fear is what, again, is driving that shame, you know, that they had then projected off. And so for me in my own journey and my process, you know, I feel shame about a lot of different things, but this was definitely the biggest one. Um, was growing up, one, finding the courage to just be who I am mm. and using that courage to then live as who I am, which is very different than identifying who you are and then living that way. Mm -hmm. And finding compassion for those who had, you know, shamed me in the past, understanding that it's more about their experience than it was about mine. Yeah. And that's how we heal trauma in general. And again, trauma and shame are so interlinked. Yeah. So, yeah, so my journey is one of that, you know, is going through the same process that I work with couples and individuals on of, you know, identifying the shame, understanding it, understanding where it came from, building a safe space to exist, mm. and then utilizing that to find compassion. Yeah. I know many beautiful moments that we've seen between couples or individuals is when they can actually say, like, I am worthy, you are worthy, you are significant, you are okay just as you are, I am okay just as I am. Oh, freedom. Yeah. Freedom to be imperfect. Thank yes. you. That feels really good. You know, just kind of reflecting on on us and our conversation today, I noticed like we there was like this real like gentleness, but also tentativeness. Mm. And I think that that's like there there's something about that 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 even in just discussing shame in an abstract way, for us we were just so cautious. And I think it's because we know like this is at the root of so much suffering mm -hmm. in the world and that it takes such, again, like what you said at the very beginning, it takes like safety and, 
and that, and that's what we want to cultivate here for for individuals, couples who are listening is is just knowing that we all carry shame, and there may be ways your partner, somebody you love, is dealing with their shame that may look sort of like you don't like it. Mm-hmm. But the remedy is not indignation and anger and frustration. It's actually opening your heart to them and letting them know like, look, I wanna love you and accept you completely. I don't always like things you do and that's okay. And you're not always gonna like things I do, but I think you're a good person. Yeah, and I think even just having the intent, the intention to say, I'm going to look at you with grace and say, you know, what is this really about, this behavior, this thing that I don't like that you're doing? What is this really about? And the other thing to remember is that there's nothing in the literature, there's nothing in the research that supports the idea that the harder we beat ourselves up and the meaner (laughs) we are to ourselves, that the better we're going to (laughs) be. You know, we have to, yeah, I know, surprise. (laughs) But we do it. We do it all the time. We beat ourselves up, we beat each other up. And and sometimes we do it in in the name of accountability, but it's often not really accountability. So Yeah, I mean, I I think this is why Tara and I connected with you so quickly when we met you, is just this this, uh, deep belief, this deep drive that we want to create a space for people to suffer less. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're doing it and and we thank you for it. Our hearts thank you and they're very happy that you're here with us. Yeah, Cuz you can just if anyone out there can just like feel Kelby's presence, he is just you feel like I felt safe immediately when we were even doing the interview. I was just like, "Oh my god, it's like this big teddy bear." That's what <laughs> it felt like, like the safety. It was so cool. I even said that to EJ. I'm like, "He's so safe." You know, and that's again telling of all of the work you've done to um, process and heal your own shame, and and I also love you know that that your playfulness as well. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and I, I I think that that is like an essential component that you know yes. an individual out there who's maybe looking for a therapist in their community is someone who creates a really safe space for you, but then that that sense of play and freedom and creativity that gives you the ability then to tunnel down into some of this stuff because it it takes some work mm-hmm. and you have to sort of, you know, you, you have to have freedom, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think that that's, you know, you, you're very good at creating that space and we, uh, we appreciate you very much, Kelby. Thank you. And, you know, I've said it before, I wouldn't be able to show up and feel safe, you know, feel like I could create this environment if it wasn't for you guys creating that environment in the first place for me to feel safe. So I appreciate you just as much. Thank Thank you. you. All right. Well, you know, as always, we really appreciate all of you being on this journey with us and exploring these topics and internalizing it. We really appreciate it when you do share our show, tell a friend, tell a family member, Please give us a rating on whatever podcast platform you are listening to us on. And please leave a comment. Uh, There's a link in our uh, show notes, and you can leave a voice comment or a text comment. We respond to every single one. Sometimes we include it or it creates a show. You know, this is an amazing community that we're all part of. And uh, thank you for being a part of it. And thank you, Kelby, for being our special guest and just a special person and for helping others in their process of being the best people they can be, whatever that means for them. And as always, take care of yourself, take care of each other. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Me and you, 
singing on the train Me and you listening to the rain Me and you, we are the same Me and you have all the fame we need Indeed, you and me are we You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.